0: Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA, members of FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart.
1: Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. In an attempt to put a lid on inflation and an overheated economy, the Fed raised interest rates by the biggest increase since 1994, and it might not be the last time they do it. Abba is Washington is a Washington Post economics correspondent, and she joins me now. Abba, welcome to First Look.
2: Thanks so much, Jonathan.
1: So how effective will the rate hike be in putting a damper on inflation and on the overheated economy?
2: Well, that's the big question. Um, this is a very aggressive rate hike. We've seen two others this year, starting with 25, you know, a quarter of a percentage point, half a percentage point, And now this is the biggest one yet, which is three quarters of a percentage point. We're already starting to see interest rates going up in a number of areas. Mortgage rates are now at 5.8% for a 30-year fixed mortgage. And so we are starting to see um, the effects of that. Now, how widespread those effects will be, or whether it'll be enough to sort of, tamp down on inflation and really slow things down to the level that the Fed wants without slowing things down too much is really what the, the tricky balance here is.
1: Right. But one thing we should also keep in mind, and by we, I mean we here in the United States, is that inflation is high all over the world. So will this rate hike really do anything to cool a global economy that's on fire?
2: That's a great point. Inflation is surging all over the world, um, but a lot of the world is dependent on the US economy. And so what happens here has a ripple effect throughout the world. Um, the hope is that by bringing down demand, we'll start to sort of see a leveling off of supply and demand, and that's going to make prices you know, sort of stabilize a bit. And, and that should have trickle effects around the world.
1: OK, so since you mentioned supply, what about the effect of supply chain shortages, the pandemic? Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. How do all of those things factor into uh, the economic woes here in the United States?
2: Those are all of the wild cards that we're dealing with. Um, A lot of, you know, for the last year and a half, we've had a booming economy. The recovery after the pandemic has been incredible because consumers were out there again, buying houses, buying cars, buying just about everything they could get their hands on. But at the same time, supply hasn't caught up. There's still a lot of supply chain issues in large part because of the pandemic and now because of shutdowns in China and the ongoing war in Ukraine. And all three of those global factors are huge uncertainties. We don't know what's going to happen in the next week or the next month. And so it's really difficult to predict where things go from here.
1: So with the Fed jacking up interest rates, um, my thinking is um, the consumer is out there racing fast and furiously to lock in either mortgage rates or car loan rates. Has there been a rush of people trying to do that to hedge against future hikes?
2: You know, there has been we do hear here and there of people who are doing that, but for the most part, I think the sense is that people who really wanted to buy a house or really wanted to buy a car kind of got ahead of them. sorry about that got ahead of that in the last year and mm-hmm. a half. Um, So we're already starting to see um, in many parts of the country, for example, that the housing market is still very hot, but not quite as hot as it was a year ago. There aren't as many bidding wars. Prices aren't as ridiculously high as they had been. And a lot of that is because of mortgage mortgage rates. And people are realizing, well, hey, at five point eight percent, maybe it's not worth it to spend this much money on a house right now.
1: I just saw a, a cartoon. I believe it was in the New Yorker <laughs> of this realtor with two prospective buyers and a giant bear behind her. She says, "Since it's a bear market, you're gonna have to fight the bear if you want to buy <laughs> if you want to buy this house." Um, that's your little Friday funny there, Abba. So you wrote this week about how some businesses are worried that this this recent Fed hike will trigger other issues such as a new recession, layoffs, etc did the fed take that into consideration before doing what it did a a three quarters of a percent hike in interest rates
2: absolutely that's been a big focus for the fed it has two big jobs one is to keep inflation in check with interest rates and the other is to keep an eye on unemployment and keep an eye on the labor market and so it's been taking all of those factors into consideration and that is the big worry that if things slow down a bit too much, unemployment could start to pick up. We're at historically um, low rates of unemployment right now, but if that starts to inch up a little too much, then I'm sure that that is gonna start reconsidering.
1: Um, As I sort of mentioned before, the Fed hinted that there might be additional hikes later in the year. What would trigger future hikes and when might that trigger happen?
2: the Fed has left the door open. They're saying they they are likely to be or they could be as aggressive as they have been being there. You know, they they've sort of had many different signals out there. But the things that they're keeping a close eye on are inflation, if we continue to see inflation getting worse, that would be a sign to the Fed to tighten clamp down even more. And the other big issue is the job market. If job growth continues at the rate that it has, um, I think that's also another red flag.
1: You know, there was a—I I don't remember where I saw this report, but it was about how the Fed was caught—and this is my word, not in the story—flat-footed on the pace of inflation. I mean, that's the Fed's job to keep an eye on on those things: inflation, recession. How is it that the Fed is playing catch-up here? It seems.
2: There has been a lot of criticism that the Fed missed the early warning signs. I think early on, the thought was that this inflation was very temporary, transitory, as they called it, because of so many supply chain issues related to the pandemic. And so the thought was that this would maybe happen for a few months or a few quarters and things would sort themselves out. But that has not been what happened. Um, instead, we've had an ongoing pandemic, the war on Ukraine, you know, complications in China, and all of those have just kept making inflation worse.
1: So you you've been doing a lot of reporting, talking to real people, everyday people, uh, everyday Americans about their concerns about the economy and the impact and in, uh, of inflation. What are you hearing from them?
2: You know, we're starting to hear trepidation from consumers of every income level. I think for a long time, people felt that their savings accounts were looking good. You know, things were flush. They were spending. They were like going out into the world again and booking vacations and sort of spending freely in a way that they hadn't been able to in many ways. But now that's starting to shift. Um, People are pulling back on purchases of goods and they're also starting to pull back on services, you know, routine services like haircuts or nail salon appointments, getting a new roof. More people are asking if they can patch up their roof instead to buy themselves a bit more time. And so there is this sort of fear that the economy could worsen, that their financial situations could get worse. And, you know, they're starting to see their savings accounts dwindle, and there's not a big hope of government stimulus or something else sort of helping them rebuild that nest egg. So all of those things are are, uh, going into consideration.
1: Mm -hmm. And how much are gas prices uh, playing into this? You know, I was in California uh, last weekend where gas prices are always high, but they were (laughs) were uh, approaching—Regular was over $6.00. Premium was approaching seven, if not over seven. Here, gas prices um, in, in Washington are now over five dollars. If you get premium gas, it is like five ninety nine. Um, by now, it's probably over six. Are we? And the president announced he's going to Saudi Arabia, which is, you know, part of the reason for that trip is to get the Saudis to pump more oil. Will we see? any relief in the short term uh, from from rising gas prices?
2: You know, there's not a sense that there's a lot of relief on the horizon. Gas prices are above $5 a gallon on average nationally. And some analysts like JP Morgan are now expecting that that number could reach $6 by August. So we're in for a summer of very high gas prices.
1: Thanks, Abba. <laughs> I think we all, we all knew that, that the once summer driving season got started, that the ga- gas prices were either going to be high um, or, or keep going higher. Abba Bhattarai, Washington Post economics correspondent, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you. We're going to keep the conversation going with the opinions side or the opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists Hugh Hewitt and Dana Milbank. Hugh, Dana, welcome back to First Look. Thank you,
3: hey, Jonathan.
1: All right, we're going to start by talking about the January sixth hearings that ha- hearing that happened yesterday. Dana, the key name in yesterday's hearing was Vice President Mike Pence. Your, pers- your re- I want your respective reaction. To yesterday's uh, testimony but Dana you go first.
4: Well um, yeah I, I mean you may not be expecting me to you know say my you know latest heroes are uh, uh, Bill Barr and uh, Mike Pence uh, you know the White House counsel's office during the Trump administration but um, look I, th- I think we're getting uh, a fuller picture I think we knew the outlines of this but the really effective part of this is to actually Uh, hear in their own words from officials in the Trump administration. You're not taking Democrats' uh, words for this. You're not taking the media's uh, word for this. So anybody who's listening, and that's that's an important asterisk there, um, will find out what actually uh, had happened here. And the good news is that there were plenty of people uh, in the Trump administration saying, no, this is unacceptable, Uh, this is illegal, Uh, the vice president uh, and his staff being... uh, uh, high among those people, uh, you know, the the bad news is we didn't hear more about it uh, in real time, uh, and you know, the uh, sort of march toward authoritarianism uh, has continued uh, unabated. But look, this is it's very important that we're getting uh, the these actual details on the record, a sort of an oral history from people uh, within the administration. So I think these hearings are having a profound uh, effect on the nation's understanding, if not on the nation's politics.
3: You. Well, I have to disagree with Dana about the impact of the hearings. I've got here Bill Barr's memoir, um, one damn thing after another, and on page this came out in April. I interviewed him in April. Page 351, he writes: uh, After the election, President Trump was beyond restraint. He was only he would only listen to a few sycophants who told him what he wanted to hear. Reasoning with him was hopeless. Uh, there is nothing new in these hearings, nothing, and therefore. NBC's decision yesterday to cut away from the hearings to go to the U.S. Open made perfect rating sense. And the most important aspect of the Pelosi 1-6 committee is that on Thursday night, they had their big primetime extravaganza, two straight hours, six networks. And on Tuesday, four days later, Myra Flores, the Republican, in an 80% plus Latino district in Texas that went by five points for Joe Biden, won by eight points. So, whatever it is they are doing in D.C. with the Pelosi 1 6 Committee, it isn't impacting voters in the heavily Democratic Texas 34th. It's doom. It's doom for Democrats if they think this is helping them, if they think that people are watching or they're
4: changing the narrative. It's not. You, you, it's- see, you see, Jonathan Hughes said he disagreed with what I said and then said exactly the same thing that I said, which is that I think this is very important for the understanding of the nation, but is not having an effect on the politics. Uh, whatsoever. And I think that's because the people who might be changed by this, the Fox News uh, set of viewers, were either not getting to see it or, at all, or when they are offered it by Fox News, are just tuning out. So I, I think you and I are in perfect agreement that it's not having an effect on the politics. Uh, I think that when history looks back, they will see that there were people who stood up for democracy, and unfortunately, there were many others who didn't.
3: I, I just wanted to point out, Dana. We know everything that's in this hearing. There's nothing new. And
4: I, There's I too, new. use Bill Barr's uh, autobiography as my bible. It's right there on the shelf. That's right. Well, the other one I've got is the Nixon Conspiracy
3: by Jeff Shepherd. So I'm ready to talk books this morning.
1: Fellas, can I jump in here for a second? Because one of the things, one of the things that that drives me crazy about discussions about the January 6th Select Committee is that everyone immediately goes to the politics of the hearings. They talk about um, what no one's listening. But yesterday we heard in great detail, whether people have written about it or not, Hugh, we heard in great detail a plot, a coup against the United States government that put the life of the vice president in danger a cockamamie scheme that everybody knew, including the guy who devised it, knew was not legal, not constitutional. We saw it all laid out. We heard testimony from, at the time, sitting members of the president's administration, the vice president's uh, uh, staffers, talking about how the man's life was in danger. The tweets. That went out at 2.24 from the President of the United States who knew full well that the life of his Vice President was in danger because of the riot that was happening inside the Capitol. Why aren't you guys talking about that?
3: Uh, well, because Cute. I've been talking about it since January 6th when I tweeted but my But I'm talking about
1: right impression. now. I'm talking about
3: yes, right now. I can I can th- you know, Why am I not talking about the 2016 Indians losing to the Cubs in seven games? Because while that is a terrible dip baseball loss, it happened five years ago. I know all this. I follow this story every day. There is nothing new. Zero I, new. That's it. I find that outrageous.
1: <clears throat> Dana, yeah, would,
4: I, um, I, please tell me. I, I fundamentally uh, disagree with the, with the nothing new view, but let's suppose even if there were nothing new, uh, our democracy uh, is under a, a clear and present uh, threat. Uh, it continues to, to be, um, and I think it's ridiculous and disgusting to talk about, uh, as Hugh has just done, uh, you know, the, you know, that it's not having an impact on the midterm elections. This is having an impact on our democracy, on all of our lives, and will for decades to come. And I mean, disagree- I don't understand. I'll talk about that all day. We
3: just disagree. And half the country agrees with me and half the country agrees with you, but half the country just disagrees again, with you. Right
4: back, right back to politics and you know, carving the nation in two and who and disagrees and not over. talking about a coup against the democracy of the United States of America. It's just a
3: buzzword. It doesn't
4: matter. You're not going
3: to move the needle.
4: The needle has not moved. We're not talking about the needle, Hugh. We're, talking we're not about talking about the part. needle, Hugh. Hugh are. Yeah. we're not talking about the needle. You must be Hugh. made with
1: Hugh. you and someone's Hugh. going to be with you Hugh Hugh Please explain to me why also we're not talking about judge uh, judge Luding um a a, a giant um, among and in, in conservatism who said he would he,
3: would, he, he would have he wrote it in do the you New York
1: Times. Talk over me all you want. I, I am trying to ask a legitimate question about the importance of the testimony given by a giant in conservative legal circles, Judge Luttig, about what he thought about John Eastman's scheme and what he would have done if the vice president had tried to do what Eastman wanted to do, which is what he said in testimony that he would have thrown his body in the road in front of Vice President Pence to keep him from doing it if he were to do it. Your reaction to that,
3: please. I've known Judge Ludig for 30 years. He's a close friend. We both labor in the White House Counsel's Office under Fred Fielding. Mike is right. The Eastman interpretation, who I've known for 30 years as well, is wrong. And I've said that for 15 months. What you guys want is outrage over facts long in evidence, and I'm unwilling to play the outrage game over that which I knew. Now, Mike Ludig came in, and it's very important, when Judge Ludig says something, you can count on the legal accuracy. But I had already reached the opinion that the Eastman interpretation of the Electoral College Act was wrong, as did the Vice President's lawyers and the White House counsel. So if you're outraged over finding out about what you haven't been paying attention to, I can't be sympathetic.
1: Hugh, I'm outraged over, the, over finding out more information about an attack on our democracy, and for that I will not apologize, and I will not stop asking about it. Whether you know about it, you've known about it, you've talked about it, but not everybody knows these things. And in, in fact, when it comes to history, that's why this is so important. You know about it now, but generations down the road will be learning about it for the first time. So, you know, I, I Sorry about that. Dana, could you please um, explain to me your reaction to finding out that the man, John Eastman, who came up with the, the um, crazy idea of the vice president um, not counting, just counting the votes as they've been selected uh, submitted by the Electoral College, that he requested requested a pardon in the days after January 6th?
4: Yes, and that's something that's quite new. Uh, I'm, I'm eager to see this pardon list that they keep referring to, which apparently has several Republican members of Congress and uh, a- administration uh, officials on it. So not only did other people say, tell him what he was doing uh, was illegal, tell the president uh, what they were planning to do was illegal, but he himself knew uh, that what he was doing was uh, illegal and uh, you know, advised by his colleagues to go get himself a... Uh, a good uh a criminal defense lawyer uh presumably he's done just thing such a thing because he knows uh what awaits and now if you're uh, merrick garland uh and you know <laughs> uh, that this has gone on out there you can see why the justice department is uh, eager to get more of the uh, january 6 committee's uh, uh findings and and uh, in- uh interview notes than it has already
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And and Hugh, you, I mean, any reaction to finding out that John Eastman was looking for a pardon?
3: I want to go to what Dana just said. The Washington Post story this morning is that the Department of Justice is concerned that Nancy Pelosi's 1-6 committee is interfering with their serious prosecution of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. They've got to stop these hearings if we are going to bring the necessary seditious conspiracy hearings that need to be brought, because what happened on January 6th was outrageous, it was an attack. It could have resulted in the deaths of far more people than it did. Four people's deaths are connected with it already. And many people are going to jail, including the sentencing of one protester yesterday to 60 days in jail. The pr- prosecutions by DOJ are fine. I don't think Eastman's going to be prosecuted. I don't think the president's going to inform president's going to be prosecuted. I don't see anything that's come up. And so I think you guys should wait to see if DOJ actually does what you think you want it to do, indict someone. I don't even see a federal statute that's been broken. And so I just think you ought to focus on the fact that the Washington Post this morning is reporting that the Department of Justice is upset with the Pelosi 1-6 Committee because it's hindering necessary prosecutions of the criminals of January 6th.
1: That's the third time you've referred to the January 6th Select Committee as the Nancy Pelosi 1-6 Committee, when the chairman of the committee is Benny, Th- Benny Thompson and the vice chair of the committee is Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Republican from Wyoming, Nancy Pelosi, her name is not part of the title, Hugh. So,
3: respond. Um, when Kevin McCarthy, with his with his oh, 30 or 40 who made a
1: huge mistake he, by not by by not working with the speaker to put people on I'll the committee.
3: Who, when who Kevin McCarthy appoints the Afghanistan Collapse Committee and names two oh, Democrats and Republicans okay. no, next year, I you, hope you don't guys...
4: Don't you get tired of shilling for these autocrats? Come on, man. Uh That's a little bit different
3: from what we normally do. I'm just pointing out Kevin McCarthy, if he appoints an Afghanistan Committee... You're just uh, pointing out... ...that, and two Democrats that to Kevin investigate
4: McCarthy's own man negotiated a bipartisan independent commission that they killed. I know. Uh, the tape they they, is opposed, they opposed the formation of a bipartisan committee. They put January 6th insurrectionists on the bipartisan committee to sabotage it. And then they boycotted the bipartisan committee. And now you're calling it the political I think this is all ridiculous. And we should be focusing on the actual facts that come out. When Kevin McCarthy
3: appoints a seven-person committee, five Republicans and two Democrats, to investigate the collapse of Afghanistan, will you applaud or will you call it an illegitimate committee?
1: I'm sorry. That doesn't what, even deserve a response, you, Dana. Um, can we I, I want to ask one more thing before we turn to before we turn to Watergate? And that is um the big news from our post colleagues that um, Jenny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, had emailed John Eastman about overturning the election. Um, she told a conservative outlet yesterday that she looks, quote, forward to talking to the January 6th committee. Um, do we think that she will she will actually sit down with the committee given the
3: the news that's come out? I would not do so if I were the the justice's wife. I don't think it's a fair hearing. However, uh, she's a very confident and capable individual. I also am not surprised that she corresponded with John Eastman, who's a former clerk to the justice. There are probably seventy of them. I'll bet you Mrs. Thomas keeps up in touch with all of them. But we'll see. I don't know. I wouldn't sit down. I think it's a uh, it's become kangaroo courtish at
4: this point with regard to Ginny Thomas. Dana, do you
1: have a a, a prediction? Yeah,
4: I mean, I'm, it, it's not clear how actively they're pursuing the idea of having her there. You, you, know, you can see Rudy Giuliani you know, nominally cooperated, and they have a couple of clips of him saying what he had said previously. So I'm, I'm not sure what value-added is there. We, we know exactly where Ginny Thomas was, and there's endless uh, 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 footage of her saying uh, what she'd like to say, or at least of her mm-hmm. uh, text saying. Uh, what what she wanted to say. So I'm not sure the actual presence of us there. She's pretty well on the record.
1: Um, So today marks the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. Dana, in looking back at the timeline between the break-in at Watergate and and the resignation of President, President Nixon, do you think that history is repeating itself
4: now with the January 6th hearings? You know in a sense it is and I, and I would say in over the last half century you know after uh, watergate we had the watergate era reforms and i think a lot of the story of this moment is the breakdown of those reforms and now that was happening well before uh trump and i think it accelerated under trump uh and continues now whether it was uh campaign finance uh or the uh, budgeting process or uh, ethics or you know foreign corrupt practices act uh, war powers you know efforts to reign in the imperial presidency that happened in the 1970s have essentially deteriorated and been unwound now. So I think, in in a way, the deterioration of those reforms uh, allowed for uh, the Trump's abuses and accelerated that deterioration. So I, I think that's the tie-in. So uh, and we that that therein allows uh, history to uh, repeat itself with the imperial presidency. Hugh. Uh, Full disclosure: I worked for President Nixon in San
3: Clemente, the Elba of America, from '78 to '80. I worked for him again in '89 to '91. I'm a member of the Nixon Foundation board. This is the best book on Watergate, "The Nixon Conspiracy" by Jeff Shepard, who was a lawyer in the White House throughout all five years. Bud Crow ordered uh, G. Gordon Liddy and John Dean to come up with the cover-up. That's led to the disaster. President Nixon didn't know about it, but he did participate in the cover-up. We know everything about it. The key difference. You guys are 10 years younger than I am. I watched the Watergate hearings. I watched every minute of them because I was in summer school and I had the basketball coaches, the summer school American history teacher. So he rolled in the TV and we watched it. Nobody knew it was going to happen. Those hearings produced the recognition that there was a taping system in the White House. Those hearings produced John Dean. He may have lied under oath. I'm not sure. Uh, That's still a matter of some debate. They were interesting. They had huge audiences during the day that's the big difference those have news in them
1: these don't um, Dana these hearings have no news in them January
4: 6 hearings well Hugh knew it all already so <laughs> but that and uh, notwithstanding uh, you know I think an American, uh, seeing uh, who is tuning into it, who is seeing uh, what is happening, who is hearing about the illegality, about the threats to democracy in the voice of the actual people who work for Donald Trump are producing news for uh, us, whether we choose to see it now and we'll be talking about it 50 years from now. A and question. the impact
1: of what, and, and, and the, in the uh, 90 seconds that we have left, actually less, the impact of Watergate on journalism,
3: Oh, it's terrible. It was terrible. Everyone wants to be Woodward and Bernstein. There's only one Bob Woodward. Everyone wants to be a star. It was a terrible impact on journalism. But you guys haven't mentioned Texas thirty-four. And if these hearings mattered, Myra uh, Flores would not have won a thirteen point swing for the Republicans in a heavily Hispanic district. Dana, can you I,
1: can I, I just... think that
4: was about Watergate?
3: <laughs> yeah, and, and also, you know, don't I mean it,
1: this is just it, look. The impact of Watergate on journalism is that it inspired an entire generation of people to go into one of the noblest professions um, in the United States, and that is the press. Dana Milbank, Hugh Hewitt, thank you both very much for coming back to First Look. Have a great weekend. You too, Jonathan.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad.